Hey, hi, hello. Welcome to episode 35 of Trail Society brought to you by our friends over at Free Trail. I'm Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger. And I'm Hillary Allen. And we are recording early this week, early this week's, I would say. And that is because our very own Hilly Allen is uh, boarding a plane in just a few days to uh, send it all the way over to Cape Town, South Africa to close out her 2022 season. I was thinking about this, Hilly, knowing you, knowing me, knowing a bunch of us, which sounds like a song from the 80s. Um, is that this is the time in like a race block where I personally start to like second guess everything that I've been doing. Like, oh my goodness, there's no way I'm ready for this. Like I haven't done any training, which is total nonsense, et cetera. And so I'm wondering how you're feeling right now, given that we're, you know, about a week out We're we're actually, we are, we're a week out from race day. So how, what's going on Wait, in your head? No, we're not Corinne. Don't freak me out. We're oh, like, no, two, we're not two we're weeks. Two weeks. <laughs> we're two weeks. You're right. Sorry. I fly to, I fly to Cape Town because I'm doing commentary for the race. I fly in a week. So we're a week up from me traveling. We're two weeks out from Hilly racing. We're three days away from Hilly getting on a plane. What's going on? How's your head? Oh God. Um, you know, exactly what you described. It can be a bit of a mess. And like, um, yeah, I feel it's like, you know, you're teetering on the edge of like doing enough, but then, you know, like doing too much. Right. And there's been like, we talked last time, there's some weather changes in Boulder. Um, this morning it was 17 degrees, uh, you know, and I'm, you know, running a race where it's going to be super hot. So there's always like that kind of, um, doubts and like little niggles that you're like, oh my gosh, is this going to turn into something bigger than it is? But, um, yeah, this is why I'm probably just like bugging my coach, <laughs> um, sending them messages. He's like, Hilly, you'll be fine. Like, just do, do this. Like you're, you know, I don't know. It It's, it's, it's a whirlwind, but, um, I'd like to say that I've gotten better at it. The, the, the truth is probably not. Um, <laughs> it's the furthest I've ever traveled for a race, actually. So um, it's it's exciting. There's a lot of people there. I'm so excited you're going to be there, Corinne, because it's yeah. going to be guaranteed sick live coverage. Um, I'm so excited. And I mean, your Adidas teammates, like there's so many people like throughout all the races. Um, I mean, I'm so excited to see trails that I've never run before. It's actually really cool. I've, I haven't run a race blind this long, I think ever. Um, all of the longer races that I've run, or at least since like 2016. So I think that's something I'm really excited about kind of going back to the early days of my ultra running, uh, where I would just show up at a start line and be like, all right, this is going to be an adventure. And I think that's going to be cool to have that perspective mm -hmm. going into it. Yeah. I know for me, I have like a full day layover. Like I've got like a 10 hour layover in London <laughs> on my way over and like an overnight layover in London on my way back. I'm just going to go walk around London for a day because I don't know what else to do. I've got like a <gasps> 10 hour or 11 hour layover. So I have friends I can connect you with who are awesome in London and they can Perfect. take you to some cool places. Text me. Okay. Um, Keely, you're bundled up a lot. You're wearing, you're wearing all, all your layers right now. I know winter is I know settling into the PNW, but I think we talk a lot about how we're busy on here kind of constantly, but you're really, really busy. And I'm wondering if you can just catch us up on, on kind of everything that you have on your plate right now, just because I think it's, it's very grounding and normalizing <laughs> that we're all kind of frenetically running around. Oh my God. I don't know. Um, to start that off this morning, I slept through my alarm by an hour and 45 minutes. So that's how my day's going. <laughs> so I've not gotten anything that I plan to get done this morning done. Um, but yeah, um, me and Dr. Pritchett are actually like on the end of submitting a couple papers to some journals. So we've been hammering out 
um, those, which take way longer than I remembered from my publishing days. Um, Nike definitely kind of skews your brain on that a little bit because you just publish internally. So you don't publish to these big journals. And so it's a little less, um, you know, intense. And so that's been taking up a ton of my time. And then I've also been teaching organic chemistry. Um, my professor from last year asked me to help her out because she was down a graduate student. And so I've been able to help these little babies with OCHEM. And it's been amazing, but also like gives me so much like respect for teachers because it's so hard. A lot of them don't want to participate, at least not in the beginning. And so you're like pulling teeth, like, guys, I know you don't really understand this. So we have to work together. Otherwise, you guys aren't going to do very well. And so they finally have opened up to me. But by doing so, it's like the classes run over. I have girls reaching out for like one on one tutoring. Um, and then, yeah, taking biochemistry as well. Like, um, Hillary used to take and it's amazing and it's really fun because I feel like then I can double on my runs as like runs are also study time because I can think about like metabolism and all that's going on while I'm running. Um, but yeah, trying to balance all that with training is it's not that bad. Um, plus, you know, all the shows and stuff, but yeah, I think we're all very human and sometimes it's like my days I'm very good at scheduling if I have my schedule, but as soon as something's thrown off, like I'm off because I have like no free time. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know how that, that feels too. I mean, I know all of us, like Corinne, you're like launching your coaching business. Like, <laughs> yeah, and that's official. That's official. I'm out. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, we can we can officially say that on air. I, uh, I'm on my own, which is really, really exciting. Um, it's paring down my athlete load actually more than anything so that I have a more sustainable cohort of athletes. I will be taking on some new folks in the new year. Um, I've got a nice little roster to get me through to Jan one, and then we'll be recruiting some people kind of post post lottery. So if you get into one of the big races and you need a coach, you can reach out to me. Happy to help, help those hard rock Western States, UTMB folks out or anything in between really. But yeah, it's definitely, it's been a crazy couple months trying to like come back from Europe, figure out an injury and like turn a bunch of career stuff into into something that feels sustainable so that I can take care of myself elsewhere. I think a lot of people were like, oh my God, is she pregnant? Like why, why not running? And why, what are these life changes on the horizon? And the life changes were that like, yeah. I, I'm changing career stuff just to make sure I don't go absolutely insane. So yeah. And one of your career that. changes was, is now you're the editor in chief of run free trail, mm-hmm. which is awesome. I think you're doing a great job. And I feel like one of the most recent things that I loved was the like photo diary you did for the U S world champs by Mike. Um, I feel like he's like this, you know, under the, under the cover, uh, photographer for Leah Yingling, but like is an amazing photographer. So recruiting him to do your photo journal was awesome. And I feel like people haven't seen that yet. They should go check that out, but it depicted the U S runners experience over there really well in Thailand. Um, and so I love that. It was like a really cool internal look of that. Um, and the ladies and men crushed it. Yeah. Like, we should talk world about that. was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. It was cool to have someone on the ground kind of feeding us images. And it, it was this kind of like, we didn't do any results heavy reporting, but we did kind of like just behind the scenes with Team USA reporting. And so, yeah, if you haven't seen it, go over to freetrail.com and check out. I think we put up six worlds posts over the course of like five days. So we were very, very all hands on deck trying to make that happen, but it's very cool. Um, but yeah, this was the first, like the inaugural world mountain trail running championships. So they combined the world, I guess it was the mountain like running association and 
the IAU and ITRA or the International Trail Running Association world champs into one event. And I think at least from my perspective, I talked to Leo and they they had a layover in Seattle on their way home. So I had lunch with Mike and Mike and Leah then. And it was definitely a big team, which I think feels different than some of these other smaller worlds teams. But it also, I think, made the event feel a lot more like grounded as a staple in the race mm-hmm. calendar or in the every other year calendar, which will become, but I really, I really liked it. And I'm really, I'm, I'm, I am hopeful that this legitimizes world champs moving forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, I mean, I think so too, because before it was kind of just like, if there's multiple ones, you didn't really know. Athletes is didn't the know which ones, right. Where is one, but then athletes actually didn't know which one to target. And it was kind of like a toss up to see actually like the competition, right? Like if there was, and this, this race was like extremely, I mean, if you looked at the start list, like even just for the Americans, but just for the different teams, like it was insane of how many athletes were there. Yeah. It was a pretty deep field for being a November race. And for this being like a two-year delay of the Mm -hmm. event, it was supposed to happen in 2020, then 2021. So they still were calling it like the 2021 world championships. Um, The next one is in Innsbruck in June, which is like, kind of insane that it's only eight months from now. Um, that's going to be unusual, i.e. the next world champs for 2023, then it'll be 2025, then 2027. Mm. So we'll have better qualification windows moving forward. But um, right now it's going to be a very tight qualification window. It's going to be a lot of resume-based application stuff. But you can reach out to the American Trail Running Association, uh, the ATRA, um, they are the ones that will put forward those qualification standards. So if you're interested in trying to make a team, um, there will be an opportunity to kind of race for a spot, um, in the spring, but otherwise it'll be resume based and you want to reach out to them or look at their website to figure out kind of when those resumes are due. Mm-hmm. But the U S team brought home a lot of hardware. Mm-hmm. I know. And I, it, I can't help but think like going forward, it's going to become even more hardware, right? Because this was like the first time where it felt more legitimate for us. So it's really exciting, but, uh, yeah, where do we want to start? I feel like we should start with Allie Mack. She kind of yeah. ran the show over there. She took home Off a gold. Madeira. Uh, after the, the, the gold tra- golden trail series where she raced what four races in six days. So she is on a terror right now. And she went in and took gold in the uphill and then took bronze in the short distance trail, which was like, what was that? 10 K no. Yeah, it was almost no the the short the up and up, down right up yeah. down yeah so it was just yeah. under eleven k yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah it's, okay. normal, it's normally a pretty short short spicy event like under an hour mm-hmm. type thing um but yeah it was kind of bonkers to watch her and, and yeah. she led the U S women in on those team competitions two podium podium finishes there including mm-hmm. a gold in mm-hmm. the in the uphill. uphill so it was yeah. double gold there double bronze for um the up down yeah like so she like so cool walked with a ton of hardware um speaking of team stuff i think we want to highlight kimber maddox and the women's yep. marathon team kimber finished seventh after like mm-hmm. a great occ this year like so mm-hmm. stoked for kimber to i feel I, i've known about kimber for as long as i've been in <laughs> oh, the yeah. trail ultra community yeah. <laughs> I, I went to the uphill downhill u.s national champs in bend oregon in 2015 uh-huh. or 2016 and Kimber was there and I was just like so blown away by yeah her t- I mean she was an OG on the Nike trail team for a while mm-hmm. because yeah. she was like new in the sport but then she'll be open about this she had some like health struggles for a while she just couldn't put her finger on and was patient with them and didn't force it and like ended up having to take you know five years off competing mm-hmm. but now she's like back and like 
on a terror. And yeah, I mean, I'm no stranger to Kimber either. When I lived in Bend, she was my go-to training partner. She lived like 0.05 miles away. So I could just text her 10 minutes before I run and be like, you running? And she'd be like, yeah, she's the most consistent training partner you ever could imagine. Like she will be there right at to- on time or a little early. And so you always kind of feel like the schmuck. <laughs> she's amazing. amazing. She And she just moved to Fort Collins. Speaking of another, mm-hmm. like someone balancing it all, she's doing all of this. And she yeah. just started, she just started a new job teaching at CSU. Like mm-hmm. she's, cool. she's a scientist. She's amazing and just so kind, but also like humble and just a crusher. Like it's mm-hmm. a, it was so cool to hang out with her a little bit on, um, cause I've known about Kimber too, but like, I hadn't had the chance to actually like sit down and talk mm-hmm. to her. So now I've got yeah. to like, and she make... set the rim to rim record this year too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. A good, a good mm-hmm. season. I wish mm-hmm. rim to rim stuff counted for, or I rim to rim. I wish FKT stuff could factor in a little bit to ultra runner, like North American ultra <laughs> runner of the year <laughs> stuff, just because I think that like really like, re- like helps like mm-hmm. buoy her, um, like 2022 resume a little bit, but I think, I think Ashley Brosovan was the next woman on that marathon team and finished maybe just outside of the top mm-hmm. 10, like 11th. Yeah. I think 12th somewhere or something. In there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but they, they ended up coming away with the silver medal for the team competition there. Um, we should note that in the vertical and the up downhill course, those were scored like cross country meets where mm-hmm. the, you take your top three athletes, you add their finishing places together, lowest points win for the long and short trail running stuff. So the 40 K and 80 K teams, those were scored based on the accumulative time of your top three runners, which gets spicy. when we talk about the men's 80 K team here in a second. Um, but yeah, so women took silver in the, in that 40 K team competition, Max King in the 40 K like fourth place, like was fighting for the podium all day. That was a really, really fast field. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of like that plug for like Max King, the ageless wonder a little bit. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I just love watching Max King and his like little, like sometimes his like the oh, one of my favorites are hilarious. Some of my favorite. It's like literally he'll be on this run and then all of a sudden, like you see him and he's like, has a selfie with like blood on his face. Mm-hmm. And then, and then he's like talking to the camera, like later you think he's going to quit. And he's like, you think I'd stop? And I'm like, oh my gosh. Nope. Definitely not. And then you see a straw later and he's like, sets all the crowns. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Max is, Max is another level. And I think the only thing that he hasn't really like nailed is like the hundred mile distance, but he's got so much versatility. Yeah. You know, you got to remember that he's running so much fast twitch. <laughs> yeah. You got it. Like this guy has run in the steeplechase Olympic trials, um, like in the final for that <clears throat> has run Olympic, uh, trials, marathon qualifying times has run, and, and, and one, you know, on the podium for hundred K road worlds, mm-hmm. like the guy he's great yeah. in the mountains. It's kind of insane. It's so crazy. big shout out to Max King in the, on the 80 K team. I don't think the women had the day that they were hoping for. Mm-hmm. Um, Leah Yingling had a really great race. And I think in talking to her, there were only a few things that she would change. Like, I think she mm-hmm. felt really good about her run there. She was 19th. So in the top 20, and I think it was, I mean, it was a tight, like, it was a pretty tight race. Like I think 15 minutes would move her from 19th to 10th type of thing. So it was mm-hmm. like, there was really no room for error out there. So the women end up finishing fifth in the team competition. Um, which is but, sweet and a big step mm-hmm. up from previous years. Well, they've, they've actually done really well in the 80 K once before in oh, okay. the 20, uh, 18 worlds. That was like Caitlin Gerben, Sabrina, little Amy, Claire Gallagher. 
Claire Gallagher yeah. that year. I think they, they were on the podium in the team mm. competition. I think but, that was third year at Pendigolosa when it was yeah. over there. Mm. I was there at that race. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like this, they can, they can do really well. And this was just like, it was it, the women's competition in particular at worlds was really, really mm-hmm. deep. If you go down that list, you're like, Oh, cool. Like all the best Spanish yeah. women, all the best French women. Um, and if you want to cry, go watch, um, Audrey Tangi and Marion. Mm-hmm. I can't remember her last name. Finished. They tied Together for, for France. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To and, solidify the gold. And, so cool. uh, yeah, Blondine like jumps <laughs> on them and they just have like this giant like celebration hug fall down mm-hmm. pile. And it's um it's really cool because these events yeah. you're not racing just for yourself, like you're racing right. for your team. And I think it gets the best out of people. Absolutely. Um, which is what we saw like the US men's team like oh really took that to heart yeah. in a big yeah. way. The men freaking crushed it. I mean, <laughs> they got gold. That is amazing. I don't and know people, if they've ever gotten gold before, have they? No, this is a huge, no. to, to beat yeah. France and Spain in particular in the team competition here was mm-hmm. a big, big deal. Mm-hmm. And because it's based on time, combined time, yes, Adam Peterman charging hard over the last, like the final, like the final downhill mattered because they only beat France by six minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but That's Eric crazy. LaPuma and Jeff Colt ran together like a lot of the day in part because of that so that they could push each other Got it. and they ended up finishing like you know career best for both of them in a big way like hmm. eric lapuma's seventh mm-hmm. so so solid like a big standout result for him um i wouldn't sleep on eric lapuma like very talented individual <laughs> and then who like he ran on the 100k u.s road worlds team this year too <laughs> and then jeff colt in 14th like right trying to figure so out his close. place in the sport. Like so cool. Yeah. And they stayed really close in time, which is how they ended up getting gold, which is really cool and shows how stacked that field was. Yeah. There's just yeah. not much time to play with. Yeah. Yeah. You had to be on it. And it was a faster course. than I think most people anticipated, we thought it was gonna be mm-hmm. a little bit slower. Um, just like hearing about it and it ran mm-hmm. a little bit faster mm-hmm. than I think we like in, in talking with the women on the team in particular, it ran a little bit faster, I think overall than we were thinking like when I was on the ADK team and, way back in 2016 mm, with me um uh <laughs> carolyn Chevreno won that race mm. and it was like she won in just under 10 hours hmm. like that was this, a gnarly race yeah and th- this was so this was like a considerably faster race mm-hmm. than that and and the and like looking through that field you're like okay cool this is i mean like beth pascal was like 17th in that race or something mm. so mm. it's crazy congratulations <laughs> team usa we yeah. were Very just proud. blown away <laughs> yeah. And then I think the other big story that race weekend, no surprise from the world mountain running side of things, but the East Africans are here to like throw down. Um, they, the only reason the Ugandan men didn't win the uphill day is because their little, like their little red truck transportation went to the wrong place. Oh, no. Um, so they missed the Ugandan men missed the start of that race, um, oh, no. which is a bummer, but also sounds like it wasn't a surprise to people that were there. Um, just like not, not a lot of asking for help type of thing. Like need to, need to kind of self-advocate to get them to where they need to be. Um, but they showed up in the uphill downhill in a big way. And then age was also really interesting. Like the woman who was second to Allie in the vertical was 43 years old. Mm. Um, Eden Nelson <laughs> is 41. Um, and at the same time in like the 40 K race, the second and third place finishers in the women's field were 23 and 20 years old. Like mm-hmm. Jess turned 23, Jess turned 20 um, years old. So really, really like the 20 year old was the youngest person in the 40 K field and was hoping to gain experience and 
took third. So really, really cool to see, you know, 20 year olds lined up against 43 year olds and, uh, just really like a, a very cool weekend of racing and Innsbruck 2023 is only eight months away. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy. Okay. So news we're, we've got one short bit of news before we dive into our meat and potatoes for the day. And that is a New York times article that came out this past week. And, um, we want to just chat about it a little bit. It's called female college athletes say pressure to cut body fat is toxic. And we want to recognize right off the top that this is a discussion about abuse in the college system. And it relates to disordered eating and body fat, which might not be good for your mental health. If you're listening to this, if that is something that is an issue for you, um, just skip ahead a few minutes. Um, and you'll, you'll join us in the Riley interview, which is amazing. So just wanted to get that off uh, off the top of this because I know that this is a conversation that can be really hard to have, particularly if you're in a place where you're struggling with this currently um, or in recovery. And Keely, you and I were texting about this piece a little bit, and I'm wondering what your gut reaction was to reading it. I mean, yeah, I I found this piece and my initial reaction was like a mixture of shock and also not surprised. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I went to Penn State and Penn State's one of the colleges that they highlight in this article where women are coming out and saying the, to- the culture at Penn State in the track and field department is super toxic. Um, and they're used, they use body pods or bod pods and all this kind of stuff to monitor, you know, body fat composition. Um, and I went to Penn State and ran a little bit with some of the club cross country girls. And, you know, that's where I heard that, like, I should lose my period. Um, and I also was best friends with a, a girl who ran on the track and cross country team. She was on the pole vaulting team and like, she would, she was in such a bad mental state and she like reflects on those years as like really sad years that she like was unable to control because she felt so out of control because she had to hit this body ideal. And like, she never had the season she needed because she was so in her head and like, couldn't reach this body ideal, even though maybe, you know, she didn't need to, maybe she would have just been as good as she was in high school, you know, Mm -hmm. but she was never able to like jump how she wanted to. And it really like broke her heart. And so, I mean, I think it's really brave of all these women now finally coming forward. I had forwarded her the article and she was like really happy that someone was brave enough to finally start talking about it because she's known obviously for a while now that the culture there is toxic. And so I think, you know, as more teams come out, like the University of Oregon article a year ago, hopefully more teams are going to start advocating for themselves and like trying to change the order of operations where like, you know, coaches aren't able to order their girls and guys to get DEXA scans or bod pods over the course of the season, multiple times to track body fat. Like those need to be used in a very thought out way. And they also need to be used to prevent injury and look at bone mineral density and use how they're supposed to, and not try to put someone on the spectrum of like, you must be this body fat percentage because all the research that's come out over the past year or two has shown that there's actually not really a correlation between BMI or body fat percentage and performance for yeah, women, it's, especially. It's, right. It's so it's like, what like are you a time going trial, off? right? Yeah. It's akin to like a time trial. Like it should be this information. It should be personalized. It should be, um, there's a quote in the article that I did not pull. Um, and we'll link this New York times article in the show notes if you want to read it, um, or want to at least look it over. And it was talking about how, like the only way to use this kind of stuff safely is that the athletes have to not like not be required to do it. Like it has to be a choice. Um, they need like the support to go with it, like working with a dietitian. like they need, they need both the psychological and like the scientific support 
um, to, to utilize this information. Um, and that might, that might be just like getting a green light and saying thumbs up, like you're a healthy human. That's what we want. And that the information is private, um, under like, you know, just treating it like medical information, i.e., you know, knowing where this data is going, knowing where this information is going, i.e., it's not like, oh, well, we just, we bod pod you and we give it to your coach. Right. Because the coaches aren't the people who should be delivering this information. They're not the people who have the the background or the, honestly, like the bandwidth to be having the conversations necessary with an athlete about this information mm-hmm. um, to do so in like a sensitive and like appropriate way. And so right. I think that, like, that was a really interesting, like, as we know, you know, there's no, there's no like long-term direct correlation between performance and body composition. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very generally very short-lived improvements, mm-hmm. but this idea of like, there are, there are appropriate ways to use it. And most colleges don't meet that standard. And that is like a glaring issue. And that's mm-hmm. why we have all these athletes with like huge, you know, feeling brainwashed, these like mm-hmm. psychological issues around, around, um, you know, their bodies and around, uh, disordered eating behaviors. Yeah. And disordered eating is already so rampant in the sport. Like looking at Dr. Pritchett's paper she released this year, they were showing that even in women who've already qualified for the Olympic trials in the marathon. So these are gifted runners. There's over 50%, over 50% are very dissatisfied with their bodies. And the prevalence of an actual eating disorder was like over 30%. So, you know, we're adding in bod pods and DEXA scans to a population that is very prone to mental disorders in this space. Already on the edge, right? Yeah. We can't tip them over. Yeah. And then think about a college population. Like not only are they already on the trajectory to being more susceptible to disordered eating, they are also trying to balance a full school load while training at these high intensities. Like they can't afford to be narrowed into this small body fat percentage range. Like that's just so unrealistic for them. And so, yeah, I feel like if they want to use this to, you know, increase the performance of the women, they have to be very, very individualized working hand in hand with a nutritionist to find like a body fat percentage range, not a number for each mm-hmm. individual girl. Right. Because they're going to vary. Like somebody might be running their fastest at a totally different body percent body fat percentage than someone else. And that's hundred percent. Okay. But as soon as you try to bring them down, their performance is going to suffer. And so we can't just have like a one size fits all. It's just not going. Yeah. To like you have to be under X, Y, or Z. Like that's, yeah. I think that's where it becomes very inappropriate. There's a quote in the article, you know, that basically from, from this doctor, Dr. Quattro Moni um, said that, um, you know, the like kind of the biggest issue with using this in schools is that the practice is steeped in weight stigma, stereotypes, and misinformation again, right? Like where's this information going? How is it being used? How is it being generated? Um, it's not based on sports science and rarely is the practice managed or monitored closely by qualified health professionals to have any positive outcome. Mm-hmm. Instead, it can have devastating consequences for the athletes and, and will sabotage the very goals that athletes and coaches pursue, i.e., when you put an a-, a bunch of athletes in a bod pod and then you give the coach the thing and the coach says, well, you have to be under X, Y, or Z body fat percent. <laughs> all of a sudden these athletes, like the U of O article, right. Where like athletes were doing doubles to try to kind of, to burn X number of calories per day. And I was like, well, that puts them into a state of relative energy deficiency yeah. and your body, your actually your, your body comp generally for most people gets worse, i.e. Yeah. <laughs> you know, goes up. And so it's, it's this really like, I think, I mean, I, I was bod potted a bunch in in high school and not in high school in college and like Hmm. don't have, don't have a negative feeling about it. But I think the people that I was working with in and around this information, one, I wasn't on the edge and two, like 
had the support system in place to use that information for me personally, as opposed to that information wasn't given to my coach and the coach wasn't able to say, oh, Curran, you need to be under X, Y, or Z, right? Like, I think that that is the difference Mm -hmm. there. But I like, once again, I don't think most programs have the capacity to do that. And this is the out, like the, like the fallout from it is like Mm -hmm. devastating. Right. I just also think it's just a huge misunderstanding of like women physiology and how women work as athletes. And that's, that's, that's the part about this, this, that makes me the most disappointed and and sad because it just represents just a huge lack of understanding and lack of research about Mm -hmm. how women's bodies function differently than men's in athletics. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about, I mean, they, they mentioned in this article, they say, um, both males, both male and female athletes in track and field have spoken out about having eating disorders and being pressured by, by about their weight by coaches for women in sports, the strain compounds, the stress society already puts on women athletes are not to be thin. And I mean, I think that's a very powerful statement. Mm-hmm. And then hearkening back to the U of O thing, like I was told by, um, like an inside source that, that like the way the, the DEXA scan situation was, was not impacting the male athletes, i.e. it was only required of the female athletes. Mm-hmm. Once again, I don't think it's every college. I think that there are colleges that, mm-hmm. you know, are doing this to to everyone on the team, not just the women. But I think that once again, like you're right, you're combining like societal norms with like abusive coaching relationships and young, hungry athletes who want to make the NCAA team who want to be all Americans who are high achieving individuals. Mm -hmm. Like this is the perfect storm for, you know, just out of control, like, Mm -hmm. like having horrible relationships with with food and their bodies. Like how many women are we going to have to break and, and the careers of early for us to change the narrative in this sport and actually make change at a like organizational level and have this not be the norm. Uh, Yeah. I hope there's not many more. (laughs) Yeah. And I think this yeah. just goes back to like, there are good coaches and there are bad coaches and there are mm-hmm. good programs and there are bad programs. And I, I like feel for athletes who have ended up at some of these really high performing programs who might ha- be on, that might have bad practices. Mm-hmm. And it's hard as a, you know, the question then goes, okay, like how do we protect young athletes coming into college? Like, what do we say to 17 mm-hmm. and 18 year olds and their parents? who are listening to this, who are trying, who want to run in college, but are, are aware that there is an issue at places. And some might not care about that, which is unfortunate, but I think it's like, how do you, how do you find, find that? And there's that balance between like, well, it's like, okay, well, maybe if you run for a division two program, like maybe like, maybe it's less intense there, but I don't think that's always the case. And I just wish that there was a way to to do that. I played, you know, D3 college. Granted, we were in kind of like a different where we like, and it, not, yeah, we were basically in a different thing where we played like D2 colleges as well. We we're in a different division, but like it's, it was just as bad there. Yeah. So it's not, it's not like the, oh, if you stay outside of the highest performing programs, you'll be fine. And I wonder if it's like, well, like do your research, right? Like how many, how many, like, maybe those are the questions, like how many freshmen coming in are running when they're seniors? How many of these athletes are running post-collegiately? Like asking some of those hard questions that maybe the coach isn't going to be forthcoming. Maybe that's talking to some of the people on the team or talking to the athletic department, just kind of broadly about it. But I think those are some of the questions that need to be asked by parents and, and young athletes going into college programs is like, what's the longevity 
of, of these athletes. Yeah. You can throw a dozen eggs against the wall and get an NCAA champion out of it or a champion team out of it. But at what cost, you know, are they, are they breaking 40 athletes to get to that one athlete are, or do you have, you know, 12 healthy freshmen come in and 12 healthy, you know, seniors graduate? Mm -hmm. Like, what does that look like? And I think that that is, I think we need to be more critical about some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that speaks to more of the coaching present too, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. How many, what's the natural attrition rate versus what, what should, what should the, what, what do we want the attrition rate to be? Like someone's going to leave just because like you, your only goal was to run in college. And then once you've done it, you're like, actually, I don't want to run in college anymore um, type of thing. But it's, it's uh, yeah, I'd want to, I'd want to dive into those numbers a little bit more. So just be critical, ask around, ask, I mean, be your own self-advocate, right? I think that's what it comes down to here too, is that like the more people that speak out, the more power people have, the more, the the easier it is to self-advocate. And I'm hoping that that's kind of where these athletes are getting to is that the system is allowing them to self-advocate better. Mm -hmm. Okay. End rant. End rant. End rant. We'll come back to this. We'll always come back to this. (laughs) Um, Before we dive into our meat and potatoes for the day, um, we need to talk about someone helping make this all happen for us. And that again is the feed your one-stop shop for all of your sports nutrition needs and recovery needs. And if you're my husband, water bottle needs specifically, um, really, really cool that you can buy a little bit of this, a little bit of that and make kind of a, a recurring monthly box of goodies or one-time order because you're leaving for a race and you're all out of whatever gel or drink mix it might be. And you're leaving in 10 days to another continent and you have to get all of your nutrition right now. I don't think any of us have any experience with that, right? No, we definitely <laughs> don't. Um, if you would like to try the feed, um, you can go to thefeed.com slash trail society. And there you can claim a $15 store credit. That's a free $15 to spend on, on whatever you would like. And keep an eye on the website. They regularly do sell like, like sales, you know, like, Oh, scratches off this. Ooh. Like if you buy this, maple syrup drink mix. It comes with a water bottle. Like keep your eyes on it. They do really, really cool. Um, kind of uh discounted, not giveaways, but things like that. And then claim that $15 again at the feed.com slash trail society. Um, and you know, make, make your dollars go a little bit further. Um, I think we can do it. I think we can bridge into part three of a never ending diversity and inclusion dialogue. I think we set out to make a four-part series, but um, like honestly, this could be ongoing for forever um, as we bring different people on to have different conversations. If there's one thing I think at least I've gotten out of this thus far is that, you know, we keep asking, how can we help? How can we, like the three of us, help? And kind of it's like, oh, what, what, what's your platform? Or is it financial contributions, et cetera? And we have this platform to help elevate and center voices that are marginalized in our community. And I think we're going to continue to do that as much as possible. And so today we uh, have an interview for you with non-binary athlete, Riley Brady. Riley Brady has been running ultras for almost a decade, even though they are only 27 years old. Um, they fell in love with trail, uh, trail and ultra running as a freshman in college in Vermont and have been tearing up the trail scene ever since. Riley most recently placed second at the Havelina 100, securing their golden ticket to Western States 100 in June. We reached out to Riley ahead of Havelina, hoping to learn more about them and talk about how our sport and community can be more inclusive to athletes of all gender identities. 
when a sport, when our sport, when sports in general are historically a binary system. And we really hope that you enjoy this conversation. My name is Riley. I currently live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, I'm a bike mechanic by day <laughs> um, and I like to run a lot. And you had a you had a hard out today because you have a, a welding class later. Is that right? Yes, I do. Um, I'm hoping to move towards frame building in the bike world um, for a couple reasons. One, because I think it's so cool. Um, Two, it's more sort of like year round. Like right now we're in the slow season at the bike shop and I'm going a little bit insane. Like, all right, what can I clean out next? <laughs> um, but yeah, mostly cause it's, it seems really cool to me and I'm really interested in being able to make things with my hands and I like bikes. That's really, really cool. I've got some bike, bike frame friends. We'll, we'll have to talk offline about this. We'll get you, get you hooked up with some cool bike, bike frame people. That would be awesome. Yay. Okay. So going back in time, I'd love if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself. You're only 27, but you've been running ultras for like eight years, like almost a decade, which is kind of insane. So I'd call, I'd consider you or call you like an early adopter of the sport. And so were you, were you just an athletic kid growing up? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So growing up, um, I would not consider myself to be an athletic kid. Um, I read a lot. Um, I, I mean, I was always active. Um, my brother and I would play outside a lot, you know, riding bikes or playing Frisbee or just kind of, you know, my parents would take us on walks in the woods. Um, but I was never like that good at sports. I was kind of like awkward and uncoordinated. I'm still kind of uncoordinated. (laughs) Um, but I started running to, kind of stay in shape for the other sports I was playing. Um, probably like late middle school, early high school was when I would occasionally just go on a run outside of like a sports practice. Um, it definitely wasn't consistent. And then, um, by sophomore year, I'd kind of figured out like, I want to do cross country. I think this is the part of the sport that I'm actually good at. Um, and I just transferred high schools uh, and I knew the soccer coach at the new school. And she was like, come play soccer. It's going to be really fun. And I was like, all right, fine. I'll, I'll play soccer. Um, and I had fun, but after that, I was like, no, I want to run cross country for junior and senior year. Um, so that's what I did. And then when I got to college, I had a lot more time on my hands. Um, I, I worked really hard at academics in high school and my life was school. And so then in college, if you knew how to manage your time, like they're just kind of these bigger chunks in the day. Um, And so I just started running to kind of fill that time. Um, And I met my, one of my best friends at college and she told me about Cayuga Trails 50. Um, And I was like, Whoa, this is a sport. Um, And I was like, well, I really want to do that race with her. Um, but we, at the time you needed to qualify for it. So we quickly like looked around like, all right. And I hadn't run a marathon before. So we were like <laughs> looking around for a marathon or a 50 K that I could run so that I could do Cayuga trails 50. Um, and we found the New Jersey ultra fest 50 K. And actually at the time they had multiple distances. So there was marathon 50 K 50 mile, hundred K hundred mile. Cause it's just like a loop 
course. And my friend was like, you should just jump right to the 50 K. Like it's only a few miles more than a marathon. Like you can do it. And I was like, yeah, I can do it. (laughs) Um, so did that, um, did Cayuga trails 50 a few months later and just kind of was like, yeah, this is a sport for me. Like, this is pretty awesome. Um, so yeah, I've been doing these since I was, I think like 18 or 19, something like that. Um, and I know I'm still pretty young in the sport, but it's, it's fun that it's all like starting to really come together. My first trail race was not super traily. It was like an old railroad. It was like a rail to trail track for most of the race. Um, I didn't know anything about nutrition. Like, I don't even remember if I ate anything that day. Um, (laughs) I, I remember like I had one of the like original ultimate direction hydration packs, I think, and like the hard bottles up front that like really bruised my rib cage. Um, yeah, I just like didn't know anything. I think I bonked super hard. Like I was walking for a portion of it, just felt like I was going to die. No energy, probably because I wasn't eating anything. Um, and I remember at some point, like I had this song stuck in my head and I just kind of started singing to myself and I was like, all right, I'm ready to go now. Um, so it was kind of cool to get that, like, um, realize that there's like this mental component to ultra running that can sometimes like overcome those low moments. Yeah. I think that a lot of people can relate to the idea of being like a soccer player or a lacrosse player and being like the part I'm good at is the running part. Like I'm not good when like the ball part of the ball sport (laughs) is involved. Um, so I think that that's very, very relatable. I think Keely Hillary and I all have very similar experiences to that being like, Oh, we can run the whole game. Okay. Um, so what, I mean, I think adopting, being an early adopter in the sport, joining it at like as an 18 or 19 year old community is a big part of that, obviously. And I'm wondering what pulled you into that community? Like what was so enticing about it? Yeah. I mean, I think sort of the same thing that I still find so enticing about the community is that it is just like a really welcoming place to be. Um, and I, I think I really liked that, like, you know, it, it kind of feels like everyone's going through this like intense experience on your own, but kind of together. Um, like you're all out there kind of struggling on the same course. And I think that helps foster this, like uh, the, the supportive nature of our sport. Um, and I think with Cayuga trails 50 too, my Ian is the race director. He, um, he's become a, a good friend and he's, he, he's just like, he's a cool guy. He makes the races really fun. He's got like little signs all along the course for like getting a free pie at the end or like a worst feet award at the end. And so he had all these kind of like other things that he was celebrating at that race besides just the people who won. Um, and that was, that was fun as a newcomer to the sport. Um, just seeing like the, the different ways that race directors and the community, like celebrates different parts of being successful for dealing with those lows. Like when I first got into ultra running, like definitely the community is part of that. Like if you are running with other people, it always kind of can help like 
pull you out of that moment, I think. Um, and like seeing what other people in the community are doing and more experienced runners. I think that's when I realized like, Oh, you have to like eat the whole time at these events. Like you can't just like eat a piece of watermelon at one aid station in a 50 miler and expect to be okay. (laughs) Um, so just like having examples of people who know what they're doing was definitely helpful. Um, so when we reached out to you ahead of Havelina hundred, uh, through a mutual friend of ours, Ellie Pell. And then during the race, I'm like literally texting Ellie being like, crap, we're going to have to get in line to talk to Riley <laughs> now. Like we missed our opportunity. Um, and your run in Arizona was incredible and did not surprise me. You've been tearing up the East coast, but the sport is so, is so Western bias. I think, you know, for some reason that means that you get to shock people all over again, um, who weren't paying attention. And I'm just wondering how it feels to have secured a golden ticket to the big dance. Yeah, it feels really good. Um, especially now I've had time to like, let it sink in. Um, I was just kind of in shock at the, at the moment when it happened. Um, but it's a goal that I've been working towards for a long time. Um, and I'm, I'm so excited to be towing the the line at Western States this year. Um, and I'm, I kind of, I still can't believe it happened quite this soon. I was kind of expecting like maybe to have to take a couple more stabs at it. Um, but I'm really, I'm really, really excited. And then I think everyone wants to know you're awarded this giant humongous golden ticket. Like has the golden ticket made it back to the East coast? It did. I was worried about that. Um, usually I don't care about like race prizes and stuff like that, like medals. I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. Um, but I was really excited about my big golden ticket board. Um, and at the airport, I asked at the gate check, like, what do you think I should do with this? And the guy was like, Hmm, well, I've never quite seen that before. Um, uh, just, you know, take it through security and, and, and get to the plane and, and they'll figure it out. Um, and I get to security and they were all like, huh, what do we do with this? <laughs> um, and they were kind of making jokes about it. Like, oh, did you find this in a candy bar? Um, and then got to the plane and the the people checking your boarding passes were like, I'm not sure where you're going to be able to put that. But like, maybe talk to the flight attendants <laughs> um, and the flight attendant so we're super nice. And they were like, yeah, we'll just stick this behind the last row of seats in first class um, and then just grab it on your way out. So it made it all the way back to Pennsylvania, um, but it definitely caused a little bit of an airport kerfuffle. <laughs> so your parents, um, I know that they crew you a lot and I'm wondering just kind of how they feel about the sport. I mean, it can be hard to watch a loved one hurt. And so it's kind of cool to see parents really buy into supporting their children in it. Yeah, my parents have gotten really into the sport. Um, when I first started doing these, they definitely were much more on the fence. Like, are you sure you want to be doing this? Like, is this safe? Is it healthy? You can stop anytime. Um, but they've really come around to enjoy crewing. They really seem to like going to all of my races um, my mom wants to write a crew book. I jokingly, I don't think she's actually going to do it, um, for like tips and tricks and like how hard the crew works out there, which they totally do. Um, so 
And I think part of the reason they've gotten drawn in is also the community. Like they really enjoy chatting with other crews. And if it's a kind of race where, you know, you're jumping aid station to aid station along the way, you sort of get into the same groove with the same group of other crews. So you like make friends throughout the day. And I know that there are a couple of people that they've actually stayed in touch with who they've met at races. So um, I'm speaking for them, but it seems like they also are into the the running community. <laughs> Yeah, we'll we'll take we'll take your word for I guess you know take it with a grain of salt, but they seem pretty supportive. So that's I'm I'm assuming we will see them out at Western States. Yes, for sure, they are excited to go back to Western States. <laughs> awesome, I'll I'll look for them during the live the live coverage. It'll be great. <laughs> I really love that. I love that we are all newbies in this sport at some point in time, but it's also funny just watching Havelina play out and the shock of, you know, this, this new person on the scene. And it's like, well, honestly, they've been running and crushing races longer than the three of us, I think at this point. So um, just really, really cool to get to like, to know a little bit more about Riley and their story and where they've come from. Yeah. And their story really reminded me of my own because they are also from the East coast and they kind of went, you know, from zero to hero right away. They decided that they were going to go right to 50 K and skip, you know, half marathon, marathon, all of those things just so they could run a 50 mile. And so, uh, it really reminded me that, you know, we all start from somewhere. We all do a lot of really stupid things when we start running. And so <laughs> I think it's really good to be grounded in the fact that you can have success in the sport and you don't need to be, you know, your first race might be a shit show and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also, I don't know if it made, I don't think it made the the interview, but the, the two of you had this like great bonding moment over you guys super nerded out over Pennsylvania and it was really cute. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's very fair. I think I leave Pennsylvania in my heart deeply. Obviously, I was there for so long and those trails are what got me into trail running. So I feel like I have to give some shout out there. Um, But, you know, I feel like we got to really understand how Riley got into the sport. Um, But what I felt was really, really interesting about this interview was how they have felt the community has kind of encouraged them to be non-binary and what non-binary means to them and how they want that represented in the trail community. So let's transition back now to hear their experience with being non-binary in the trail running community and how the community has enveloped them. You unintentionally made history at Havelina and you've been kind of handed this microphone very literally in the sense that I'm not 100% sure you necessarily wanted because to be fair, being non-binary is just a tiny piece of who you are. Um, and everyone has different, different views, different experiences. And so I'm wondering how you're feeling right now about being kind of handed this microphone or having this like spotlight shown on you. Yeah. Um, that's a really good question. I, um, on the one hand, I, it is a part of who I am and it's been a part of who I am for, as long as I can really remember, even if kind of the language I've used to describe this has changed over time. Um, I, and I'm happy to sort of talk about my experiences, especially if people ask, um, I, but you're, you're right in that it's not really like, I didn't set out for this to be like a platform to stand up on. Um, like, I was pretty content having, um, 
you know, the ultrasound up division, which allows you to put in your gender, but then also your sex or, or how you want to compete. Um, and just kind of having that be like a private thing that, um, you know, if race directors were looking and paying attention to that, they could then like address me the way that I want to be addressed. Um, but then you're right. This kind of got like pushed to the forefront at Havelina. Um, and I, I am a little worried that it will become like a sole focus of who I am. And I don't necessarily want that. Like I want to be able to run and have those accomplishments kind of stand on their own and not always have to be kind of tied up with gender. Um, but that being said, uh, as I started this off, like I am, I'm happy to talk about my experiences. Um, I'm not trying to hide anything. I just, it's like, like you said, it's like a small part of who I am. It's obviously important to me. Um, but I just, I don't want it to always be the one thing that people focus in on. Yeah. And I mean, we, that was the same, not the same, but a very similar conversation to what we had with Adam Mary, right? Like he would like his results to stand on his own and not just be like, Oh, he's a pretty good runner and he's multiracial. Like, you know, it'd be nice to be like, Oh, Adam Mary, he's a pretty good runner. Like he's representing team USA. Like, heck yeah. So I think it's, I, I get it. We use qualifiers a lot. So thank you for being willing to be handed a microphone, even when, you know, you definitely are much, much more than, than your gender identity. But I want to take a step back for those listening, because we have a really interesting kind of wide ranging audience, people who are like very much like um, in the know, and then people who are learning actively like every single day. And can you just take a step back with us and help define like a broad definition for non-binary for those who might be like more confused about the term? Yeah. Um, so that is going to be tough, um, I think, yeah. because it's like it is. um I think the language around these things is still evolving quite a bit. And for a lot of people, this means a lot of different things. Um, I mean, I think at a very broad level, a lot of people who adopt the term non-binary feel like they either, they don't really fit in sort of uh, as, as a man or a woman in those categories for whatever reason. Um or they feel like they're kind of like a mixture of both. Um, and some people are, you know, they're pretty adamant about like, no, I'm, I'm neither, like I'm a separate category and others are like, um, somewhere sort of in the middle of this spectrum. Um, and I guess for me, it's that I've kind of always identified a lot more masculinely. Um, like I, sometimes a lot of the time feel like there are parts of my body that I would really like to change. Um, but I know for others, it's like, they're much more kind of fluid along a spectrum. Um, so I think it's just really important to hammer home two things is that gender and gender identity, gender identity are not the same as biological sex oftentimes, or they can, they can be, they can be the exact same, you know, like for me personally, like my gender identity and my biological sex match up, but that's not the case for everyone. And I think that's really important to hammer home for those who are trying to figure this out. And the other piece that really stands out to me that you've spoken to really well is this idea of, um, this is a super unique experience in that we we have limited language and that 
an individual who is non-binary might have a very different experience from someone else who also identifies as non-binary. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is complex, but also like, okay, like my brain is wrapped completely around <laughs> this, this thing now. And I think, you know, speaking to that and speaking the language a little bit, this, you know, it feels like we're doing the best we can with the current language we have. And I'm wondering what it means to you to, to have any language to use at all to, to kind of affirm who you are. Yeah. Um, I definitely think for me, language and the evolving language matters a lot less now than it did when I was a teenager. Um, I think at that point in my life, when I was trying to kind of like figure out more where I fit in the world, it was so important to have like labels that I could use. Um, and I, I've talked about this now a couple of times, I think on a couple of the other podcasts I've been on, but like as a kid, a lot of people identified me as a tomboy and I kind of used that label, but then that sort of stops being acceptable at a certain point. Um, and also doesn't quite fit sort of where I think I fall. Um, and so in middle school and high school, like learning the term trans and non-binary, I was like, all right, that kind of fits my experiences a little bit better. Um, and at this point now I'm like, I know who I am. I know like how I want to be kind of perceived and kind of as long as people are like treating me the way that I want to be treated, like the label matters less to me um, than just like the specific ways that I'm being addressed as I go through life. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit more from what I've gathered, you know, you've really ridden this as, as many individuals do, right? Like being a teenager sucks Sorry. no matter, no matter, <laughs> no matter who you are. Like I would not relive those days for any amount of money, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more to like really riding that roller coaster of like feeling uncomfortable with this pressure to conform and like having to get to this place where, you know, you are like really, really confident in, in who you are. Yeah. Um, so I think the last question that I had on my kind of like tick list was kind of circling back to the, just like treating people the way you want to be treated, the way they want to be treated was that pronouns get flubbed, but I think it's, and I think we all know someone who like intentionally does this stuff and just ignores whatever we want. But I'm wondering if you can express to the, to the listening audience or the viewing audience, like how important it is to affirm people's identity and and how they want to be seen in the world. Cause I don't think people really get like how important that can be. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just, I think for a lot of people, it's just not something that they really have to think about. Like it's not sort of like jarring or grading. Um, cause it's not, yeah, they just haven't had to think about it. Um, and for me, it, it kind of goes beyond like just using the right pronouns. Like, obviously I really, um, it feels better when people use they, them, like, I feel like if, uh, yeah, it just, it, something is wrong when, (laughs) when it's, when people refer to me as she, um, and sometimes I get he too, but then that's like a different sort of uncomfortable in that, like, I'm scared that they're suddenly going to realize their mistake. And I'm putting that in quotes um, and then react negatively. Like there's just a little bit of anxiety when that happens. Um, 
but it's like other ways that people address you too and like interact with you. Like I'm pretty hyper aware. Um, and I think women have to deal with this to a certain extent too. Like I work in a customer facing position and like customers are like, can be wildly inappropriate and like, you know, call you dear or like pat you on the back or something like that, where they think it's being friendly. And I am like, whoa, back off. Like, you don't know me. You don't get to use pet names with me. And I kind of bristle at the fact that like, if they were, I work with my brother and like, if they were um, talking to my brother, like they would not be treating him the same way that they're treating me right now, like getting up in your personal space or like being overly familiar with you. Um, so just like ways of interacting that kind of like go beyond pronouns. Like, I think there's like, uh, yeah, there's like multiple components to that. Entering the community as a non-binary athlete, like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's who I was. That's who I am. Um, there weren't really options for that signing up when I entered the, when I first started racing. So I was mm -hmm. registering as female. Um, it hasn't really been until the last couple of years that um, I've done races that have specific trans or non-binary policies. And um, I think, you know, ultra sign up just updated how they, how you sign up um, in the last couple of years or so. So like, yes, I started off this way. I also was not super public about it. Like this mm -hmm. isn't, I don't like go up to people and like introduce myself that way. I just am myself. I think what really stood out to me here was driving home the fact that once again, like so many things in this world, in this life is that everyone's experience is going to be super individualized and that that includes gender identity and how one can use language to make sure they feel the most comfortable. And I really appreciate Riley sharing that with us about, about how language has mattered so much to them and, and you know, what it allows them to do within the community as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think they really emphasized the point home to me. And it was a little shocking to me that they really just want to be identified that way. And that makes them feel a lot more comfortable. But at the end of the day, they really just want to be identified as, you know, a human and a really cool athlete and a really stellar athlete. And they don't want the non-binary label to be what defines them only, just, right? Like they want to be a good athlete. Yeah, exactly. So I think like that story is not told enough. So it was really cool for me to listen to Riley talk about that because that was just a lens that I had not put in front of this before. And so I really liked that. Yeah. It makes you aware, right? It makes you aware of another person's experience um, and gives you a little bit of insight there. And I think it allows us moving forward to, I don't know, like have that as part of our understanding, part of our collective mm -hmm. knowledge and, you know, makes it less surprising, less shocking, less mm -hmm. different moving forward. And I think that, you know, it's once again, it's a really simple thing to do, right? Like affirming right. someone's identity and making them feel welcome because you see them for who they are. Um, and you don't get too hung up on like a specific label. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that that's just, that's so important. That's kind of what what stuck out to me when listening to, to Riley talk about it is just, you know, their experience in this sport, it's encouraged, it's encouraged Riley to be, you know, 
them. As the, exactly. Like to, to, to just be all of what they are. And I think that's, it's really cool, but it's also just one aspect, right? It's not, Riley doesn't want to be handed a microphone and, you know, to be just like, you know, everyone else that we've talked about to be the one spokesperson for this. It's just something about them that, you know, makes them them. So I I think, I just think it's a, it's a really, it's just an important reminder to constantly have. And I think every single one of us has experienced that in some way, shape or form, but this is maybe something like, um, it's become, it's going to become more common and more, I think, talked about. And it's, I think it's encouraging that trail running is at least definitely in the most recent in Havelina, it's not certainly every race, but, um, that, that Riley's been able to be accepted and celebrated for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think Corinne, you, you kind of brought up a fun, you know, point in the interview telling Riley that, you know, you are going to be someone that a non-binary athlete looks up to one day. And they were a little bit uncomfortable with that at first, I think, but then they became more accepting of it. Um, acknowledging that, you know, representation does really matter. And so when they talked about that, then they were kind of okay with the fact that they were going to be someone that someone could look up to someday. And so kind of want to cut back now and talk through, you know, representation in the sport and how important that is for someone who might be going through an experience like Riley has. In middle school, um, up until probably like eighth grade, I was pretty like unconcerned about, you know, I was, I was doing my own thing. Like I read books. I liked school. I was pretty just focused on, on my life and reading my books. (laughs) Um, but then by eighth grade, like I was definitely feeling a lot of pressure from friends to like, you know, why aren't you like, why are you dressing in boys clothes? Like you shouldn't like that doesn't look good or, you know, just feeling like, all right, I I have to start changing who I am. Like this isn't okay anymore. Um, and I never really swung super girly, but like I started wearing tighter jeans and t-shirts instead of boys jeans and t-shirts. Um, and then in high school, I think I mentioned that I, I ended up transferring schools after my freshman year to a private school nearby. Um, and that was actually the best thing in the world for me. Like, I'm still so grateful that my parents were able to make that happen for me. Um, just because at that school I had, a teacher who I remember seeing walk across campus and being like, Oh my God, I can be who I am. Like I can dress like a boy. I can have short hair. I can like, like there's an adulthood in being who I want to (laughs) be. Um, and that was kind of like the first time I had that experience. Um, and then on top of that, it was a super like very, uh, a school built on a lot of respects. Like we called our teachers by their first names. It was like a big value of the school that people need to mutually respect each other and really had a much, um, much less conformist culture than the public school that I had been at previously. Um, and so, I mean, I was still kind of like figuring out my place, I guess at that point. Um, but it was a big step to kind of, have more differences accepted in that environment and to see examples of like what a potential future looked like. Um, and then by the time I got to college, um, 
yeah, I mean, I guess it was just sort of a continuation of that process. I think, I don't think I really started feeling like fully confident in who I was until maybe like post-college. Um, but it, it does seem to just like come with time and, um, definitely seeing examples is, is helpful for sure. Yeah. And kind of speaking to examples, there are a number of like a number of people competing at the highest level of sport, um, who are non-binary, who compete in like the bio, like in, in like with, with women in the biological sex, you know, with, with other females. Um, and those include like Rach McBride in triathlon, Nikki Hiltz in track and field, um, a professional and Olympic soccer player, Quinn, uh, they actually play for the professional soccer team here in Seattle. They're Canadian. They were the first like out trans and non-binary individual to compete at the Olympics. Like really, really cool, um, to see, to see this representation out there. And while it might not feel like it yet, you will a hundred percent have younger and older athletes who find representation in you. And I'm wondering if that is yet empowering or, <laughs> you know, kind of what, like, like one you've spoken to like how representation was important, like as a high school student, seeing, seeing an adult being like, okay, there's a future for me. Um, but also, you know, in the sporting, in the sporting realm, like is how does that representation matter to you? And, and while you might not feel like you're the the face of that representation yet, um, like what, like what does that mean to younger and, and older athletes alike? Yeah. Um, it's funny. Cause I just like, hadn't really thought about that until you pointed it out. <laughs> um, I mean, like, I obviously want other people to be able to feel like they belong in the world and can be who they want to be. Um, and so like, I'm, I'm happy if I can be that for somebody else. Um, and you're right. Like it's, I've had a, I've really enjoyed following Nikki Hiltz. I like, actually I'm not right. totally aware of some of the other athletes that you mentioned. Um, but yeah, I guess that's, I'm, I'm happy to be that if I can. <laughs> yeah. Being first is never fun, but helping to pave the way as we kind of trip trip ourselves forward is, and, and, and we're going to kind of talk about that, I guess here in a second, but yeah, like it's, it's important. Those things, those things end up really mattering, um, in ways that we don't, we don't get told every day that they matter, but it turns out like you're going to run into someone at a race and they're going to tell you that. And it's gonna be really cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so talking about tripping ourselves forward races like Havelina, the New York city marathon that just happened, uh, the Boston marathon. And I think Vermont 100 and Vermont 100 K has been super progressive on this front are, are like literally helping us walk into the future. And, you know, we're definitely flailing here and there and making mistakes. Um, I'm wondering what you think it means to individuals to be able to compete as non-binary or as non-binary and then also along their biological sex on the competitive side of things. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, this is something that might be pretty individual specific. Um, and so I'm sure that there are people who are just like totally thrilled to have a non-binary category to compete in. and would not want to be competing in, uh, either their sex assigned at birth or like what, like they just want to be able to run in their gender category. Um, to me that matters a little bit less. Like I am really happy with how Vermont 100, um, and Havelina have handled this in terms of like being able to let me indicate my gender in as non-binary, but it means I still want to be able to compete in the female category. Um, 
because that's what my biological sex is. And that's where a lot of the competition is at this point. Um, and so, I mean, being able to kind of just indicate where at least how you want to be seen, um, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I think I, I hear this rhetoric a lot of being like, well, they want to have it both ways. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like they want to be addressed appropriately and sport is inherent ha, has inherently been binary. And so if you want to be addressed appropriately and get a chance to compete at the highest level of your sport, you kind of have to have it at both ways is like not the right term, but right. Like that has to exist somewhere. Yeah. And actually I think like, um, so Havelina is a good example of this because they, you know, they were really trying to be progressive this year. And when I crossed the finish line, like they announced me as first in the non-binary division. And I said, wait, like I was going for a ticket. Like I thought I had signed up to compete as female, you know, which would put me in second in that category. And, um, they were awesome about it after we had that conversation. And they're like, is it okay then if we move you over to the female category in the results? And I'm like, yeah, like yes, I don't, please. I don't feel, I don't need to win the non-binary category. Like I'm competing in the female category. I'm not trying to take like first in this one category and second in this other category. I'm not trying to like sweep up all the awards. It's like, I, I, I had that indicated as my gender because if, you know, people are commentating like, I want to be referred to as they, but I'm not, um, yeah, I'm not like trying to like stand on multiple podiums. That's not the goal at all. Yeah. And I think people misinterpret that, or at least like people are going to read into whatever they want to read into. And I think that this, I think what Havelina did is a really like in my mind, as far as like being progressive, like that, that gives people the ultimate freedom and flexibility to be affirmed in who they are and still compete in a sport that that is binary um, to allow people to excel at the high, at the highest level. And it's going to mean different things to different people. But I think that that is, I think what they tried to do there, like, albeit we all, we all make like little oopsies was like, was really good. Like, I think that that could be a really positive step forward. Yeah. And I think, I, I do think this is the first year that Havelina did this. And so like, we're, all these organizations are just trying to figure this out. And so like, I really hope that Aravipa isn't getting any sort of like flack for the, yeah. I, I know they said that they've, they made a mistake, but like, I, I think they're doing a, a great job. So something that I was curious about as an observer of watching a race like Havelina of, of having watched and followed Riley for a while now is that, you know, society puts this narrative on them of, oh, well, if we if we add a third category, we're double dipping. And, and you know, that's really not their experience, nor what they want at all. And I thought that was really cool to give Riley an opportunity to express that and explain that, because I think that's a, a like a point that needs to get driven home is that categories are going to mean different things for different people within the sport. Some people are going to really need and want that non-binary category, that non-binary podium or finishing list to be on. But for a lot of people, you know, historically competing in a binary sport, they can lean into their biological sex and get to race with their peers. And it's not this thing, a double dip in. They don't want to be on both podiums. They, they want to, to get to race where they, you know, feel comfortable. Um, and I think that just driving home once again, that like a gender identity and biological sex are not always the same thing. And they mean different things to different people. Um, and I think sport can be a place where we accept and we allow that. And we give 
people the opportunity to once again, be identified correctly and affirmed in who they are while still allowing competitive sport to continue on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's just super important to remember because I mean, if you're in the same boat as me, I hadn't even thought of it that way. Yeah. Hadn't like, doesn't occur to us, right. If it's not Mm -hmm. something that is you're dealing with in your Mm -hmm. day-to-day life, like it's not on, Mm -hmm. it's not on our radars, right. It's not, I don't, I don't have to think for a a second or a minute about, Oh, like do I, what box do I check when I sign up for Mm -hmm. a race? Because that's not my personal experience, but getting to hear people go through that experience and have to have that moment of pause, I think is really, really important. And I think is really grounding um, to just remember at the end of the day that we're all humans and we want to be respected and treated well. Um, You know, that to me is, is a really, really important take-home message. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Well, we, I think we both emailed Riley after the fact and we were like, thank you so much. It was so good to talk to you. We can't wait for Western States. Um, And that energy is going to pull us all the way through to June until the big dance. Um, So thank you, Riley. Really great getting to have you on the pod. And to close things out, we have to bring you once again, our Society Slam brought to you by Aura Ring. Keely, Hillary, do you have Society Slams? Are you guys ready to slam? Do I need to go first? Someone's got something? Oh, yeah. And yeah. I will say that maybe this is part of the race freakout stuff, but like I've been paying way more attention to like the the sleep data from my Aura Ring lately. But it's been positive. It's I'm not trying to freak out about. It. I'm just like, okay, cool. So it's a way I to am sleeping. Exactly, it's a way to help me. Uh, um, I'm definitely going to pay more attention to it with all this travel. But hopefully, I won't freak out too much if it says that you know to take it easy. Anyways, um, so I have a quick society slam. Actually, it's you know it's kind of from from all of us to all of us, I think. But I was having this conversation with a woman that I coach. Um, just recently started coaching Liz and we were talking about like, you know, um, cause she's, she's a, she's studying to be a doctor. So she's in, cool. um, she's amazing. We can have super sciencey conversations. It's awesome. But like something came up about being selfish, like how maybe being a pro athlete is selfish or like, like running might feel selfish, right? Like, cause if you like devote a lot of time to it and she sent me this email, which was like super just thoughtful and nice. And I think it, it's, um, you know, it can go for all of us. Um, I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read like a snippet. Cause she was saying about how, you know, being a pro, it's not selfish and for like all the things that we're doing. And she says, she's an example, her in parentheses, whip smart mom <laughs> became a social worker, not a doctor because she was told that medicine and science are not for women. And Liz became a doctor because her mom told her science was for girls. And she says, just imagine the young girls today who are following all of our speedy mountain running footsteps, uh, who are growing up believing they can run with the guys and with anyone and are doing awesome, crazy, speedy things on the, on the trails because of us. And she says that I think that we're encouraging a lot of people to, to follow these dreams and set examples. And I think it's a really cool reminder to all of us. And especially off of the, you know, the podcast that like the interview that we just had, even with Riley, Riley's not asking to be a spokesperson, but inevitably that's what's going to happen, you know? And I think it's a really positive, um, to, to kind of keep doing your thing and, you know, see what, what, who else that encourages. So thanks Liz. Yeah. And I I can definitely like agree with that. I feel Mm -hmm. selfish all the time. Yeah. It's definitely real. Mm -hmm. 
super mm-hmm. easy. Keely, what do you have slam wise? Uh, I have a request for an, a topic in the future. So love it. Um, uh, we have a request to talk about the hard side of being a female, talking through maybe oh, endometriosis, which, which PCOS, hard side? you know, like exactly. So it's more like the the nuances of 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 maybe women who don't menstruate naturally, um, cool. maybe through endometriosis, PCOS, um, you know, birth control to use as symptom control. Yeah, that kind I think of stuff which I finding, think would be finding an OB guide. Let's mm-hmm. get an OB guide. Yeah. Friends, friends, send us your trail running OB guides. Let's bring mm-hmm. someone on. Let's have this mm-hmm. conversation because that is a, a medical topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's super, super, and common. it's getting a lot more common. Yeah. And I think, you know, that would also be cool to, to go into like infertility and fertility and all of that as well. So yeah, shoot us your wrecks. Yeah. She just, yeah. Tell us, tell us all about your favorite OB guides. Okay. Um, I actually need to establish one here in Seattle. That's a good good <laughs> reminder. Put that on my to-do list. Okay. Um, so my slam is more just like excitement and I'm such a race nerd and a race that will have just happened when this comes out. Again, we're recording this early, um, is JFK. And, you know, JFK is this big historic race, East Coast, fast, 50 mile, a race that I think we were all hoping that Keeley would get to be at this year, post post Western States ankle, but not not in the cards quite yet. Um, and I'm just like looking over the start list and I think that it's going to be, it's going to be a good race. It's going to be a fast race. And I think that there are going to be, there's a good opportunity for some, someone, some people to like really have a breakout race. And it's like my crystal ball isn't like completely, you know, operational at all times, but I do think that I like, I'm so excited to find out after the fact, if I'm correct, that some like really, um, just some new people, some new faces on, on, on the trail and ultra scene, um, breaking out at a race at JFK would be very, very cool. A very great launching point. So, um, Gets just fired up. Yeah. This, this, it just, it gets me excited <laughs> about the future of the sport mm-hmm. and the future of these historic races that fall outside of like current race series that I think are still important, like Cape town that's coming. Mm-hmm. That'll come up. That'll happen right after this. A JFK that's happening right before this podcast. Um, like those, I really want to see these races that have been around for forever, that have historic context, continue to thrive, even if they do not become part of X, Y, or Z series. Um, so go JFK, go Ultra Cape Town. Um, really excited to see what happens there. Um, we'll let you know if my crystal ball is working. Otherwise, keep sliding into our DMs. Uh, she does topic requests. Um, if there's a person that you're like, wow, you should really interview this person, let us know. I'm really excited to kind of branch out, bring in some more interviews, et cetera. But until next time, we'll see you on the trails.